don't necessarily believe in a God, but I do believe in a great unknown other in the sense that I think there must have been a cause of existence. I have really seen that in people's religions or their spirituality, it becomes a way to cope with different anxieties related with that. It gives them a space, the space that they are not able to get with anyone else. It just gives them a space inside of them internally which helps them cope with it. I'm not talking about a real death that has happened in real time, just generally, just the anxieties that death can really induce. If you look at these scriptures and if you read them, it tries to establish religion as the most powerful, even powerful than death. So what it does is, psychologically, it lets people know that, you know, with your religion, you can still control death in, in a way. The person can be taken away, but through those rituals, through those religious acts, you're still controlling it. So that in a way gives some control because death otherwise, you cannot control it. There's no control over it. And as human beings, if we find no control over a thing, that can make us go berserk. We have to find control somewhere, even a little. So yes, religion does provide a bit of control over these unpredictable occurrences. Do you remember you? Do you remember me? And all our history Trapped in a memory Going down, down, down Down, down Down to a sunless sea Memories of my dad Episode 15 Death is not something that can be kept at a distance This podcast includes content funded by the British Podcast Awards and the Wellcome Trust. This episode explores the field of death studies, and so we'll touch on death quite a lot, bereavement, pain, terminal illness, including cancer, And it also touches on the caste system. I'm speaking by Skype today to New Delhi, which is very noisy at times. Thank you so much for doing this. I guess it's afternoon for you there. This is like the first time I've spoken to another human today. First of all, if you'd like to introduce yourself and give us an overview of who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Kyati Tripathi. I am a PhD scholar. I've just submitted my PhD thesis at the University of Delhi in psychology, just awaiting my viva to happen. And I was also a Commonwealth Splitside scholar. And I worked for a year in London on my PhD at Birkbeck in the psychosocial department. And I've been working in the area of death and related themes for 10 to 11 years now. And I've worked on various projects. So my first project was in 2000 and 
eight when I started working with the cancer patients that is the terminally ill on death anxiety, death attitudes and belief in afterlife. And I got interested in the topic of death when I lost a friend at the age of 14. So when I got the opportunity, when I had to, and I was a psychology student. So when I got the opportunity to really research and venture into something and explore something, I wanted to explore death. Because that was the first death that I witnessed as a mature individual, because I was 15 or 14. And I could witness what was happening with me looking at my friend dead, looking at and not really looking at because I never got to see his body. It just had a huge impact on me. And since then, I've been interested in the area. My first project was when I was doing my bachelor's in psychology, then master's in psychology, again, a dissertation on death. Then I did my MPhil, a dissertation on Mahabrahmins, who are Hindu death priests in the northern part of India. And then my PhD covers Judaism and Hinduism and the death rituals and their experiences. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting thing about death and grief. They're topics where you can't really stick in one subject very easily and look at them in a kind of holistic way. When we sort of look at the intangibles and the the stuff that we can't quite explain, we have to get a bit spiritual, at least, if not religious. You describe yourself in various places as doing lots of different kinds of things. So when I started my first project, I was in India. When I started my PhD, I got the opportunity through Commonwealth that I could spend a year of my PhD in London. London, at the University of London at Birkbeck in the psychosocial department. So when I started working in India, death was never something that was hidden for me. Maybe because of my family, because we used to talk about it in a very normal way. It was very open subject. But yes, when I went out into the field, when I had to interview people for the subject, I saw many people who did not want to talk about it. And either they were scared to talk about it or they just did not want to make it conscious in their heads that death is inevitable and we are all going to die. Right. (laughs) And people also felt that I was studying a really morose and depressive subject. And they felt that I have something going on in my personal life that I want to venture into something dark. So it also creates an image of you when you want to study death to such an extent. Commonwealth gave me a really good opportunity because I had already sort of exploited all the resources that I had in India in the studies before my PhD. And I didn't know what to do new. And I wanted to do something new. And then I applied for the scholarship. I went to London because I wanted to pursue an interdisciplinary PhD, which is still not a very favorable thing to do in India because disciplines are still very compartmentalized. So that's why I applied and I got into the psychosocial department at Birkbeck and that gave me a huge opportunity really. I could combine anthropology because my MPhil is in social anthropology and my PhD is in psychology. So I wanted to have this interdisciplinary PhD and I've done certain new things in my PhD which are going to create something new in the field of death. I'm still awaiting my viva, so cannot discuss a lot about it. But yes, I have tried to do certain new things in the area. Yeah, I mean, and and looking at the kinds of things that you've done, they're all so fascinating. I feel like we'll only be scratching the surface of a lot of this stuff. When you say that you were kind of influenced to look at death because you had an experience of seeing death at 14, I haven't really known anybody really, really close to me who's died. But death has always been on my mind because my dad was 58 when I was born. He had a heart attack when I was six. He had a quadruple heart bypass 
when I was 15. So I, I've always been super aware of death, uh, aware that it could happen to him and aware that it could happen to any of us. It's been something that even though I haven't academically studied death, I guess I've creatively studied death through making various kinds of art, not just death as well, the darker things in life, I guess, the kinds of things which people look at me and go, you're making stuff about that. You must be really dark and depressing. I am a bit, you seem a much more upbeat and sunnier in some ways person than me, but I'm definitely not super negative. But looking at sort of negative things makes people think you're going to be negative. And one of the things I've read about you saying is that you're interested in making a safe space for unsafe conversations. And that really chimed with me because for about four years, I ran a live event called Stand Up Tragedy. One of the things I said about that was that I wanted to make a safe space to talk about unsafe things. And that's pretty much the same as what you said. And I think it's really important to do that because these things we don't want to look at, they're really important things. And if we don't think about them, they're going to take us by surprise, I guess, is how I feel about it. Yeah, exactly. We have to have a space where we could express ourselves about our own mortalities, maybe. Because we all have that fear. I am really scared of losing my parents. Really scared. And I think one of the ways through which I'm trying to intellectualize that fear is by venturing into this area and studying it consistently. That's sort of a defense maybe that I've created because I've introspected a lot. Why am I working in this area and why am I always interested to learn more? And I know for sure that I'm really scared of losing my parents. And also another thing that added to the whole experience was my rheumatoid arthritis that I was diagnosed with eight, nine years ago. And that it was excruciatingly painful. And the pain reminds you of death somehow. Right. When it's very painful, you are reminded of it. And I had mentioned it, my, it in my article also, and you would have read it, that yeah. when I was working with my participants who were terminally ill, so I had a standardized scale because that was a quant study that I had pursued the first time. And there was an item on the scale which said something around pain and death, that death is the reliever of pain. All of them had marked it as true. All of them. And when I had that pain one night, very bad, I could really, really understand why they all marked it as true on the scale. Because I felt like if I die, maybe this pain would be relieved. I really felt that, that yes, maybe death is the only way. But yeah, it all got fine after a while. Fine, but they, that gave me a perspective. The first part of your journey into looking at death was that study that you did where you interviewed the terminally ill, which you've just been referring to. What was doing that study like and why did you do it? <sighs> what was it like? It was very nerve-wracking at the beginning. It wasn't an interview, though. It was a questionnaire. But of course, I was talking with them. I was spending time with these people. So I called it an interview because I spent time with them. Of course, there are ethical guidelines. And I remember the first day while I was in the hospital, I was in the waiting area and I did not want to go inside. I just did not. I felt like, why are they going to talk to me about their death? And death that is imminent, you know, impending. Why are they going to talk to me about it? And then I gathered up some courage. I went in the ward and the first interview, the first participant, it went on for six hours because he had so much to talk about. He had so much to talk about. And he just said that, you know, I want to talk about it. 
I am not able to talk about it with anyone. So I want to talk about this. It was in that moment I felt, no, people really want to talk about it. They want to provide a vent to their anxieties, but they are not able to do that because they can't do that in front of their family members who are already going through a lot. They want someone who is not so close and not that distanced who can just listen to them. That was difficult on one hand, but that was also very encouraging on the other, that I wanted to do it further. I wanted to interview people further because I felt there was a need. And when I met people who did not really want to talk about it, they told me directly. And I've, I've had those moments when they have verbally abused me also, because all those defenses, when I, when I would give them the informed consent to sign, they would just read death and they would just feel very, very anxious. They would just say things to me and I would just calmly wait, listen to those things as well, because that was also important. And I would just sort of say sorry and move to another person if anyone was interested. That's something I kind of seen with my dad as he's got older. One of the things he's wanted to talk to people about is his ailments, his age, his dementia. And as you say, like people don't like talking about that stuff. And so I've kind of been one of the kind of few people who I'm not happy to talk to him about that stuff. I'm not very good at not talking about stuff. He has definitely leaned on me in lots of ways. He can say all these things that get shut down by other people, maybe. They really don't like to, like families and uh, friends don't want to hear about your problems necessarily. Obviously, lots of them do. And, and of course, families and friends can be great sources of solace and people to talk to when you've got problems. I don't want listeners to think they shouldn't talk to their families. But certainly, when you speak to someone outside of your family and outside of your context, for example, I've had that experience when going through therapy. When you do that, it's so much easier because they have no connection to you. So you can just say anything. And I guess you were kind of playing that role. What did you learn about death through the responses you got in that survey? My study is titled Impact of Physical Health on Death Anxiety, Death Attitudes and Belief in Afterlife. I would just give you a summary of the results. So I had three groups. I had the terminally ill group, then the chronically ill group, arthritis and diabetic patients, having arthritis and diabetes for more than five years, then individuals who did not have health problems. In my study, the results showed Terminally ill looked at death in a more meaningful way and they had lower death anxiety than individuals who did not have health problems. So there were more anxieties in people with no health problems than in the terminally ill. So this is really the gist of everything. But this is really research specific. Other learnings are, it's very subjective. Having met them, having interviewed these people, some of them also talked to me about spirits. So, for example, I I interviewed one lady who had lost her husband to cancer. She also had cancer and she was in the ward and she was getting treated for it. She had already lost her husband to cancer. Her daughter had cancer who was also being treated. And she told me that, you know, I see my husband every day and he tells me that death is meaningful and come to me. And she was saying it with such conviction that you could not feel that she's making those things up or she's just saying anything. She really believed in it. She really believed in what she was saying. And I respected that. It did not scare me at all. I felt like, yes, maybe this is happening with her. And this is something that should be respected. Maybe this was a way she was trying to keep herself calm through the whole journey. Even if she dies, even if it's not going to make her so anxious just before it occurs. She had that reason. And I 
I really felt like she wanted me to listen to her and I listened to her and I respected whatever she said. So that also happened. So there have been numerous other learnings. That's really interesting as well. I mean, I think it's one of the things that humans can often do is develop idiosyncratic beliefs as they approach death that are kind of maybe sometimes informed by wider religious beliefs, but also are kind of very specific to them. Again, I've seen that through my dad. There's a painting that he became kind of obsessed with and talks to of a woman who lived quite a long time ago. And he kind of sees it as like talking, I guess, to death or to his future or to age. His conversations with this picture are ways for him to kind of connect with aspects of who he is and make sense of of what's going on. And I guess he gets a kind of solace from it, a kind of comfort of like somebody saying, you know, I'm dead and it was fine for me, so it might be fine for you. The picture of Esther Anne is just a picture. There's a painting and I have photographs of the painting. I'm not talking to that painting or that picture. or I'm not even aware who she is or what she is. She's somebody who's dead and uh, I seem to have some connection with something which her picture doesn't represent but offers. It's this whole question of spirituality and materiality. Not something which is within the area open to knowledge. You did that study, but you've also done different kinds of studies and learning. One of the things that came across to me when reading about your work is a lot of it feels like poetry, remaining with death, knowing death, engaging with death. Like there's a lot of like very personal ideas around death, which are very evocative. And one of the things you've looked at is the personification of death. It's interesting to think of death as a, a person or an aspect of, of us. I guess it's something that that makes sense. It's it's done in most most cultures, most religions have a way of of talking about death that is personifying death. So Dave, that's that's very cultural actually. So the personification of death bit that I have inculcated in two of my studies was actually a study that was done by Kastenbaum and Eisenberg in 1972. They had like multiple choice questions that assess the image of death in people's mind. I used exactly the same two questions. I just wanted to see how it works out in Indian sample and how do Indians see it. These two questions are mainly around whether death is a young man, an old man, a young female, or an old female. And if there's any other perspective that the participants have around it, they could specify that. The other question asked about death as if death is a cold, remote sort of a person, or a gentle, well-meaning sort of a person, or a grim, terrifying sort of a person. So I used these two questions as it is in my studies, adopted from Kastenbaum and Eisenberg, with uh, terminally ill participants and chronically ill and normal individuals, I did the same. It has been very fascinating to use these two, especially the section where I ask them if there's any other image that they want to talk about, because we have this imagery of death god, and it's called Yamraj. And if you talk about that, they always talk about Yam or Yamraj, and they are not able to see it as a person. And it's always Yamraj or, you know, the black god, the god of death in the in the studies. And certain people gave me very fascinating answers like 
they they saw death as a free flowing kite in the sky one of them actually said that it was a horse dark horse very handsome and very powerful so these are the kinds of responses that i got in my interviews and these were very fascinating so i've always been very fascinated with this study and that's why i've used these uh, questions in my studies whenever i could when i talk to my participants about death as a person they had never thought about it and it was very complex for them to even understand what i was asking how do they even imagine death as a person they couldn't understand how could death be a person apart from yamraj maybe it was very difficult but yes when i gave them certain options do you see death as someone meaningful or as someone who's terrifying or as someone just like a normal human being or a male or a female most of them said a male because of course i believe that it's a patriarchal society and anything powerful is done by only a male member of the society and that is very powerful yeah for most of them who did not have health problems so it's grim and terrifying but for those who are awaiting their deaths it's meaningful so many of the ways that we think about the world are very culturally influenced and a lot of your work has looked at the culture within india one of the other things that you've looked at are the mahabrahmins right the deaf priests mahabrahmins in in hindu brahmins as you must be aware of that there are different castes in india so there is also a brahmin caste yes. yeah so within brahmins yeah. there are different kinds of brahmins and one sub caste is a mahabrahmin and mahabrahmins are death priests if we can call them that they are born as death priests it's not something that they are they it, they don't have to acquire a skill to become mahabrahmins it's just by the virtue of their caste that they become mahabrahmins so if i'm a mahabrahmin if i'm a male member and if i'm a mahabrahmin my son would also become a mahabrahmin so it's it's like that and mahabrahmins are the ones who preside over the rituals the death rituals on the 11th day of death in a hindu brahmin household so it goes on the, all the rituals go on for 13 days and on the 11th day is the day when mahabrahmins are invited to the house and they are offered food and are also given various other offerings which as per the mythological hindu text which is called garun puran and that enlists all the items that have to be given to a mahabrahmin so that the soul feels better because mahabrahmin is supposed to be a mediator between this world and that world so whatever is given to a mahabrahmin it sort of swims across to the other world to the spirit mahabrahmins have the stereotype attached with them that because they are working in the realm of death they are polluted and though they are brahmins they are not treated as brahmins really they are treated just like one of the mahabrahmins said we are mahabrahmins but we are treated as untouchables so there is a stereotype attached with their caste with their work in the realm of death there is a whole purity impurity concept that comes into play when we talk about mahabrahmins and rituals so it's it's really a very complex world of rituals out there so when i ventured into rituals with my research it opened up a completely new space for me you know something that needs to be understood in order to understand death because why death right. is treated as impure all the rituals associated with death are treated as impure and why the rituals are impure and what are the symbols in those rituals that make it impure so that's what i got interested in and then i started studying it for my phd with mahabrahmins that was mostly an ethnographic study because i stayed with them in their village and 
I ate with them and I'm a Brahmin. So in India, with the surnames, you can tell what caste the person is from, really. So you can tell the caste group. And I'm a Brahmin and I share the same surname with the Mahabrahmins. But I'm a Brahmin and they are Mahabrahmins. And the other caste groups that were living in the village, they very strictly told me not to eat with them. Not at all. Because otherwise, I'm going to sort of malign my caste. And I shouldn't do that. So yeah, that happened. It was a very different sort of an experience because I had to create this balance between being a researcher and being a Brahmin in the village because I really couldn't afford to offend other villagers because in that study, I also wanted to interview them about their perception of Mahabrahmins. And I had to create this balance between the two, you know, being with Mahabrahmins also and not being with them too much so that the others get offended and being with the other villagers also. I think I got that opportunity to really be in the village and interview them because I, I was a Brahmin and I'm a Brahmin. Otherwise, I wouldn't have. My grandfather was from the same, uh, almost the same region around that village. And I could really tell them that, you know, my grandfather was here. So you can you can really play those things out saying that, see, I am from here. I am sort of a local and I want to talk to you about this. Otherwise, they would not give you that space in their community. They have to understand right. you and they have to have those connections with you and region, regional connection and the connection of caste, which is really a strange thing, but it plays really well in some, certain villages. So, yeah, so that helped me. Yeah, I mean, that sounds really like a really complicated experience to go through. Fascinating, like in loads of ways, but balancing lots of different people's views and attitudes so that you can study them is kind of like a really interesting duality to be inhabiting. And you haven't just looked at ritual within Hinduism, right? You've also looked at other faiths and other approaches to death ritual, right? So when I started working on my next project, I just wanted to compare different rituals. It was a project that I was pursuing during my master's. And I wanted to look at the rituals of Hindu Brahmins, also a certain subgroup of Muslims and Christianity also. Of course, I could look at only smaller groups. So I looked at the general rituals and not the very specific rituals because it differs with every subgroup. So I wanted to sort of compare and to compare this, I also did a textual analysis of the various scriptures. In Hindus, there is a scripture called Garun Puran that talks about the death rituals and death. And then, of course, in Islam, I read Quran and then in Christianity, I read New Testament and I also read a bit of Old Testament and also because people were bringing in these concepts in their interview so I had to really be aware of what was all there in these books that was also very fascinating for me because I was reading all these scriptures and I was interviewing people I would tell you one incident so at the start of the journey I did not really classify people into different subgroups for example in Islam so there are Shia Muslims and there are Sunnis and I had different Shia Muslims as well as Sunni Muslims interviewed for my project. I had them interviewed. And then after their interviews, I got to see the various differences they were talking about in the rituals. And it was after the interviews that I selected certain interviews of only maybe Shias from the group 
to really represent in my study to be represented really because I couldn't have really brought in all of it so that was very fascinating and all of them were talking about why they were doing those rituals and the most fascinating thing was they had their own logic everyone like hindus even all the participants they did not know what the scriptures really say about the rituals but they had their own logic behind the ritual i think we perform this ritual because blah 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 all of that that gives them a sort of control over what they are doing because otherwise if they will not have an association between what they are doing and why they are doing it they won't be able to do it so they would give me their own reasons and their own logic and fascinating logic around various things so yeah that was that was also a great experience there's so many different kinds of studies that you've done like different kinds of approaches it's really interesting how you're taking all of these different ways of thinking and trying to sort through them and doing a textual analysis and an ethnographic study, looking at the social phenomena of stuff. It's an interesting weaving that you're doing of all of these things. Another thing that I've read that you kind of looked at is embalming. I wanted to. Yeah. So I went to London. I had this whole project planned that I wanted to talk with funeral directors and I wanted to look at the process of embalmment. but that unfortunately did not happen because i did not get many participants so i worked on it for 3 months in london but then i had to sort of switch to another group because i could not get many participants to participate in my study i mean that's interesting in itself that kind of gives you some information just by the fact that people don't want to talk about it which i guess is the thing with death in general people often don't want to talk about it Are you scared of death? Now you're so close. No, you think about it quite a bit in different ways. You know, you're aware of it. I'm always aware of it when we're watching a program or something. You know, getting on the uh, hospital drama, yeah. which I think is amazing. Yeah, it is. It's But good. so much of it is about old people because they're on like a geriatric yeah, yeah. ward. Watching that with you, I'm like, oh fuck, this is like, <laughs> no, 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 it's like, going to be like making him go, oh god, is that what I've got to look forward to or whatever, you know? The other kinds of things that you've looked at are like the lenses that we look at dead bodies through and cross-cultural techniques of intervention for the grieving, right? Are they, those are two kind of other areas that you've explored. So I became really interested in looking at the dead bodies because dead bodies become really a tangible way to look at death. Death is in a tangible form in front of you and dead body becomes a way to communicate to us that right now death has really engulfed this body so i became really interested in that and i became interested with this one thing where when the person is alive the name is important the identity is important and as the person dies the person becomes a body get the body was the body taken to the hospital was the body taken to this place has the body been cremated or has the body been buried and i became interested in this whole thing of change in the identity i have tried to explore this in my phd work that what happens really in that one moment when the person dies how that shift in identity takes place and how death plays this very powerful act of changing the person's identity completely now the person's profession doesn't matter the person's name really mm-hmm. but the person's sex really in hinduism because the rituals vary with the sex of the person so the person's sex and the religion because religion then of course uh, your rituals are based on the specific religion the person's identity as a dead body that becomes really really 
powerful at that point in time every other thing so for example i identify myself as someone who is working in the area of death i'm a very confident woman i'm independent i'm funny i'm clever all of this goes for a toss you could be talked about as a funny woman but right now your dead body has only sort of three parameters on which you're being judged at you are dead you are maybe a hindu and you're a female your rituals are going to be based on that but yes other informal conversations around you you might be talked about as a funny woman an independent woman when they want to talk about you as a person but right now when you are to be buried or cremated you are going to be talked about as a female dead body who's a hindu that kind of corresponds a little bit with the way that in britain and certainly in in irish tradition quite often there's the funeral and then there's the wake that happens after and the wake is the bit where people would say she was a funny woman and she was confident she was you know independent whereas the, the funeral is the bit where you, you know everyone's sad and in mourning colors and very serious and not kind of talking about the joy of the person but instead dealing with the body it's interesting to think about the way that we separate body and soul i guess or personality and until death those things can't really be separated so it's interesting that we do that when people die or some cultures and some people do that when people die because i don't want to say everybody does anything because we don't live in universals it's really fascinating to me like how many facets of death you have already started to look at what parts of death are you interested in looking at in the future there are many things actually now i'm really interested in looking at black humor and i want to study that how black humor plays a role in professions that deal with death so i i'm really interested in that because that's a very powerful defense mechanism and how does that work and when it gets activated you know in the groups especially with doctors and in medical profession how do they deal with death on a frequent basis that's that's something on my mind right now my mom was a nurse and so i've heard a lot about death in that respect of like she's seen death and like the necessity for kind of gallows humor around that i guess that's something that you also have faced when you've been dealing with the kinds of studies that you've done how have you looked after yourself when looking at death while i was in london when i interviewed my participants i came back to delhi after a year and then i started interviewing my participants here and then i sort of felt that i needed therapy because i wanted to talk to someone about what i was feeling because people were sharing their personal stories and all those stories were full of different sorts of pains and i wanted to contain it because all those interviews are very confidential and i wanted to contain those painful memories inside of me what they had shared with me but after a point i felt like i would be able to do justice to these interviews only if i am able to open myself up in front of someone it was just getting so heavy for me that i wasn't able to really transcribe those interviews or look at those interviews again i was just not able to have another perspective a perspective of a researcher to look at those interviews and i wanted to have that perspective i wanted to distance myself a little bit from those narratives so i started therapy and then therapy worked wonders i could talk about everything and it helped me really look at those interviews i would not say i kept sitting with those interviews but i kept looking at those interviews and i kept analyzing those interviews in my head for almost a year and it was after a year that all started making sense to me all the interviews narratives came alive it was like that 
But my therapy helped me a lot. Interviewing your participants, you have to be very sensitive. You cannot be harsh at all. You cannot be dismissive. You have to be very sensitive. And sometimes it touches you where it hurts the most. And they talk about something. For example, my participants, when they talked about their mother's death, it was just so painful for me as well. I was imagining how it would happen to me and what all would happen when my mother would die. It was very painful. When I talk about my work, it's very personal to me. It's very personal to me because death is not something that can be kept at a distance. You don't want to think about yourself and you're just being very objective with others' experiences. That's not the way you can work with it. It is going to affect you. It is going to sort of bring out those memories. But you have to have that distance with it but still not be very distanced with it. Right. That corresponds a lot with a lot of the ways that I have to approach or have learned to approach dealing with these darker topics. You know, now I'm pretty good at looking after myself, going through over 15 hours of my dad's recordings. That affects me in lots of different ways, as you can imagine, because it's not just I'm identifying with someone else's. It's literally my family that I'm looking at. But I've now learned to make space for joy within like make sure I'm doing joyous things around the darker things and to make space for humor to find things funny about it all of those kinds of things and also to like take breaks put myself into a completely different situation and then come back to it and that actually helps the work that you're doing as well right because you could then come back to it with a new perspective that you can bring to the work you're doing when I was younger I would be less inclined to look after myself I'm very glad glad that I've learned over time to work with the darkness in a way that's safe for me. I also think that working with subjects like death or mental health is another area I work a lot around. That can also be very nourishing as well in a weird way because you you learn things that help you and give you perspective and you connect with people and you sort of share their experiences. It's quite hard not to exchange a little bit. Even if you don't tell someone your experiences, they can see them in your eyes. They can see them in the way that your body language operates when you're talking to them. And what do you mean when you say like knowing death or remaining with death? What do you mean with by those phrases? When I say remaining with death or knowing death, I just want to sort of imply that it's very important that we do not make death an alien subject. Just like I said, you have to have that maybe optimum level of relationship with it. You have to know it. It shouldn't be one of those areas that you do not want to learn about ever. We must have spaces to talk about it. Knowing and remaining, these become important because they imply a presence of it in some way, which is important because it is present, omnipresent, I would say. And we cannot really reject or dismiss its presence ever. We don't talk about it does not mean it's not there. And also it's a way maybe to bring in those conversations around death. I use these terms in a very positive manner so that people know that there are positive ways of relating with death. It's not something that's always dark. It's not something that shouldn't be talked about. That's a taboo. No, you can talk about it. You can be scared of it. You can be anxious of it. That's fine. But you can talk about it. That's okay. Like you have to accept it. And we have to open those channels of conversations, of communication. If you look at the various places where death 
the term death is used it's used mainly negatively most of the times and it's always associated with something very very painful but you could talk about death and it might not be very painful so for example for me i want to talk about my ra i want to talk about that pain it is painful on one level but on the other i want to use it as something that can get the conversations going and that's not very negative actually that's something positive out of my pain that i want to achieve so overall i don't think that's very negative it's something very important to me it's something that i want to do i want to have people talk about it openly because people don't want to talk about it and they keep it inside of them a little nudging and they'll explode explode with their thoughts around death and everything they're also scared whether they can talk about it it's just a way of letting them know that you can talk about it right. i am a 30 year old and i am working on it for 10 years i started when i was 19 so yes you can talk about it it's fine whatever age you can talk about it right this has been a really really interesting conversation to have is there anything that you would have liked to have said that we haven't touched on or anything that you'd like to emphasize before we finish not something very specific but i've already mentioned that but i would like to maybe elaborate when you work in a very sensitive area on a very sensitive research topic you have to take care of yourself first of all if you don't take care of yourself you cannot take care of your participants and second don't be scared like there are going to be anxieties there are going to be fears but let them be accept them you know they are going to be there and they are going to help you explore it more explore it further and you are going to face certain very complex situations where people would try and say that why are you studying this why is something so dark why is something so depressive just listen to them and note it down in your research diary that's it you don't have to feel affected by those things initially those things affected me i started questioning myself as a person am i some sort of a person who is always interested in something dark because all those comments play with you you want to do it it's something you are interested in this area particularly is something that needs a lot of scholars and needs people to talk about it especially in countries like india because i've seen people who have lost loved ones who have never been able to come out of that grief that's why we need people to venture into this area and help people because when you'll further knowledge it is going to help people so yeah let's just be open about all of this you know let's not talk about it as a taboo it's not a taboo it's something very normal just like birth it's death that's it let's just be normal about it down to a sunless sea on the getting better acquainted podcast feed or on its own dedicated feed you can find down to a sunless sea memories of my dad on facebook it's on twitter at sunless pod 
You can email the show at downtoasunlesspod at gmail.com. The episodes and the show notes are all collected together at downtoasunlesspod.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at goosefat101. The artwork for this show was designed by my brother, Tony Pickering. For more art by Tony, go to pick-art.co.uk. Thanks so much to Kiati Tripathi for being such an amazing guest. You can find her on Twitter at Kiati underscore Tripathi. She's still in the process of getting her PhD, which can be a stressful and anxious process, so wishing her all the luck with that. And she's an ambassador for the Indian branch of the Association for the Study of Death and Society. And she wrote an article called Remaining with Death for The Psychologist, which is a publication from the British Psychological Society. That article was where I found out about her work, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes for this episode. How do you feel about being an old person? I prefer not to be. Yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> well, I prefer one of two things. You know, I prefer either to not to be, or for there to be no mortality. You know, right. I don't mind being my age, but I want to go on being it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And since nobody who's dead can communicate with earthly existence, you, you can't know. You, you're going to find out. Or you may not find out, because that's it.